I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. So friends, we are in a um, series that's been going on for the last couple of weeks in which we're talking about pop culture and books and movies and and various things from pop culture and how they have influenced our theology, our our jobs as ministers, as preachers of the gospel. And so Sarah shared with us a series two weeks ago. I, I shared... Uh, about a book last week. So, Steve, what are we talking about this week? My attention span must be much shorter, because I'm, I'm not even going to go a whole series of novels or a book, but a, a scene from one movie. I can't even do a book. I'd say the movie. You can't even do the whole movie. Right, You're doing a right, scene right. For the a movie. scene from one movie. But it's a good one. Um, so uh, the the scene that, that came to mind when we first talked about uh, pop culture that has, has affected our faith um, is a scene from the what I consider to be classic movie Casablanca and it is one of those like if you haven't seen it I highly recommend you stop whatever you're doing and go watch this movie um, not Apparently, only what we need to do is not, a, not <laughs> only we need to just hijack this thing pause yeah. the podcast go watch it come back not, not only because it is like an entertaining movie um, but also there's deep thought-provoking stuff. But to set the, the stage, imagining that uh, someone around the table even, perhaps, had not ever seen this movie. Uh, <laughs> or somebody that seen Perhaps. Perhaps. Um, th- and this is one of those movies that, like, regularly makes it to the top, like, five of, like, all-time greatest movies when people rank movies. Uh, it's a Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman movie. It is the source of countless famous quotes and memes like, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, and Play It Again, which becomes Play It Again, Sam, in pop culture. And uh, here's looking at you, kid there's a whole bunch of fantastic great lines but the premise of the movie um it's based on a play uh called everybody goes to rick's uh which is written around like 1940 1941 uh and the movie itself came out in 1942 so this is in the thick of world war ii still unclear who's going to win world war ii and early in the united States' involvement um the setting of the movie uh takes place in the moroccan city of casablanca Uh, on uh, the coast of North Africa, and that region had been part of sort of a French imperial influence and was sort of a a territory that still had French rule. So as the Nazis rolled through Europe and eventually take over France and set up a puppet government, the Vichy government, that also means that places that France had ruled or considered territories were under kind of Nazi-sympathetic rule. And here in this city of Casablanca, it's this sort of in-between space where people uh, who want to get away from the Nazis can go, where there's also Nazis and Germans and then Nazi sympathizers who are there, and there are people uh, who just happen to be North Africans who actually live in their own land there, and all these people are sort of interacting there. And it's the kind of place where um, those kind of tensions from time to time boil over, where the local authorities just want to keep people quiet and uh, maintain law and order. It's the the movie where the line, Rhine Up, the Usual Suspects, come from, too. Um... Anyway, uh, and so the in in the movie, uh, the main character uh, Rick, played by Humphrey Bogart, runs this cafe, bar, restaurant sort of place. They also do gambling in the back, but nobody admits it. And um, uh, he runs this place like it's it's neutral territory. So there will be Germans and Nazis there. There will be local Moroccan people. There will be French people uh, and people who've had to flee their homeland in uh, from France and, and go there who are waiting, some waiting to find some way to get passage to somewhere where it's safe, whether England or to the United. 
United States or somewhere else to be free. Uh, and the setting of the movie, the plot has largely to do with uh, Rick coming into possession with a couple of passes that would allow somebody safe passage out uh, to get out of Nazi-controlled territory and uh, into his uh, establishment uh, runs an old flame of his uh, named Elsa who is now uh, romantically entangled with a uh, resistance leader whose name is Victor Laszlo. Uh, this is also the movie where that line of, of all the gin joints in all the world, you know, like you came into mind. There's so many classic lines that come from this movie. The the scene that uh, is is coming to mind and that has affected my faith so much is um, there's a point where Humphrey Bogart is in his back office talking with the resistance guy, Victor Laszlo, and then it pans back out to the main room of his cafe, restaurant, bar, and the Germans, being those Nazis, they've overtaken the piano, and the bunch of German officers are singing this, like, German pro-Nazi anthem, and I don't, I don't speak German, but the gist is something like, you know, the fatherland will rule all, I mean, it's sort of like straight-up Nazi propaganda in convenient piano song form, and it's this loud, militaristic sort of uh, song, and it's meant to be this sort of like, this this hush falls over the crowd, everybody else is like afraid, and Victor Laszlo, the resistance guy, hears this song in the distance and comes out and he won't let this stand. The question is going to be what kind of confrontation? I mean, like, if, if he gets himself arrested, the resistance is lost, he'll get killed, he'll get rounded up, and what he's looking for is some way to live another day so that he can continue to fight against the Nazis, which unquestionably is a good thing in this movie. It needs to be said, fighting Nazis is a good thing. Um, but in this scene... Um, he goes over to the band, the house band at, at Rick's Cafe, and they're all kind of like dumbfounded, like, I don't know what we're supposed to do. The Nazis are singing their loud song, and we don't want to get in trouble, uh, you know, stopping them or fighting them or punching them or they'll shoot us or something like that. And Victor Laszlo, uh, just just real quickly, says to the band leader, says, quick, play La Marseille, the French national anthem. You know, the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. That's at the beginning of the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. That's how my six-year-old daughter knows that song. She goes, that's the Beatles song. That's enough for her to know right now. But So uh, the band leader looks real quick over at Humphrey Bogart, uh, at Rick, to see, like, am I allowed to do this? Is it going to get us into trouble? And Rick, who up to this point has been completely neutral, like, I don't stick my neck out for anybody, is his recurring refrain in the movie, uh, gives the nod that they can play. Play it, and there's this powerful scene of dueling songs of a handful of these. Uh, first, it's the band starting to play La Marseillaise, and then the people across the the restaurant, across the bar, who who start singing this song of their homeland, and they start joining in it too. And for a while, the the musical score in the movie is is dueling between the two of them. You can hear them both side by side, and it's unclear whose song is going to win, who's got the louder or more powerful song. And it, there are these beautiful, powerful close-up shots of some of the people who've been forced to leave France, who, who are exiles now, expatriates, and like tearing up as they're singing the song of their homeland, and uh, eventually uh, the German song gets drowned out, and the Marseillaise completes and finishes, and uh, nobody, has, nobody has done anything violent at all, nobody's had to fire a shot, nobody's had to punch anybody, uh, nobody had to roll a tank in there. But clearly it was this moment of victory for these people who have been pushed from their homeland or longing to be back in their rightful home and to be free and all that kind of thing. Um, and at that point, the, the, uh, after the song is done and the Nazis realize we lost the song battle, um, they, they shut down Rick's uh, establishment. They're like, we can't take this loss. And they shut him down and they all of a sudden uh, 
realize, oh my goodness, there's gambling in this establishment. We didn't know. And the guy comes up, here's your winning, sir. Um, but clearly, like all these things they've been overlooking or pretending weren't going on, now they crack down, they close Rick's down. Uh, and it's this moment where Rick begins to take a stand about, like, what am I going to do when evil things are happening? Mm-hmm. And he sort of realizes he's getting drawn into it. Um, and and I won't give away other plot points about what eventually he decides and how the romance and the, the cause for the greater good uh, fits in there. But for me, what has stayed with me is this idea that uh, in this moment, the, the thing for these people who are longing for their homeland to do uh, isn't to take up arms. Uh, the, the fighting is going to happen in other places where the war is raging on. But their job here is to sing the songs of their homeland and that that becomes their resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that has become like this really important picture of how we talk about about the the Christian life as the struggle, knowing that Jesus is the one who's won the battle. And I'm, I'm, I'm hearkening back to our conversation long, long ago about what happens at the cross as sort of Jesus' victory over the powers of mm-hmm. evil. And that at no point are Christians supposed to, well, we, we got to take up our weapons and we got to stop the bad guys. No, Jesus has won the battle over death and the grave and, and sin. Um, and yet we're a part of this movement, this underground, often resistance kind of movement. Um, and so for me, it's been a, a reminder that for much of Christian history, or at least at its earliest uh, few centuries, we were this underground resistance movement against the evil empire of the day, but it wasn't a violent one. Um, it was this, we're going to sing a different song, and that will be our resistance. And they, they can try and shut us down or silence us, but we'll, it reminds me, too, of Paul and Silas singing in prison, right? That mm-hmm. this would be their moment where they like, well, we're so mad, we're going to fight, we're going to shoot, we're going to punch, whatever, and instead singing is their uh, response. Um, and that that becomes enough for that moment. Um, and in some ways, when anybody else can hear or see that that resistance song being sung, it's a reminder that, uh, in, in this case, the Nazi power and empire and war machine isn't as powerful as they claim to be, and that maybe any time we sing those resistance songs, uh, it's a reminder the empires of the powers of the day aren't as strong as they claim to be. But So that that's what stays with me from that three-minute scene from uh, Casablanca. It makes me think, Steve, of um, in the Old Testament when Israel is in exile. And I know there's at least one point in Scripture where they hang up their harps, they refuse right. to sing. Right, right, from Psalm 126. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there, I, I can't remember off the top of my head right now, if there's a point where they actually do sing the songs of Israel, you know, in exile. But that, right. it, as you're describing this scene, as for somebody who's never seen it before, it just makes me think right. back to that, that scripture and how they refused to yeah. sing because they couldn't find, because that would mean joy and they right. couldn't find joy right. in the midst of, their oppression. And I think, too, this, when I hear that song about how could we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land, I think there's a piece of it, too, of like, you want us to be your entertainment, and we are not here to be your entertainment. We are yeah. not going to sing our songs to be your little song and dance show. Mm-hmm. These are songs of faith for us, and if we sing them, it will be in your face, Empire, and as, as with no babble, and you won't yeah. win, and you won't want to hear those songs. Um, so, like, in my mind, that scene reminds me an awful lot, too, of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the mm-hmm. fiery furnace, right? And, like, and their their response when the, the powers of the day, when the empire is like, you have to bow down to the statue we made, and their response is, no, we won't. And they're like, our God is able to save us. And then I love the line, they go, and even if he doesn't, mm-hmm. they, they don't doubt that God came, but even if he doesn't, we still won't do what you say. And that God's presence shows up in that story is that fourth face in the fire, that mm-hmm. there's this fourth figure, that instead of them being spared from having to go through the difficult thing, God's presence is with them in the fire. Um, to me, that seems like very much what that scene in Casablanca is, is mm-hmm. about. That it, it's not at all that uh, when God shows up, it means you don't go through the difficult stuff, but it's that God is going through the difficult stuff with us. And mm-hmm. it, to me, it seems like a lot of times, especially in relatively comfortable 
21st century American Christianity where we have a way of getting a persecution complex like just because it's inconvenient <laughs> for me to do something I must be being per- no like that that we shouldn't expect that Christians will have uh, it easy that if, if anything we should be prepared that we will have a harder time because we're called to be in the presence of suffering when other people are being picked on or stepped on we're called to be the people who show up in the midst of that not that um, when God shows up that's when things get easy or that real Christians don't have to go through difficult times now this movie the scenes of this movie is taken you know 41 42 early on in the war help me with the timeline of Bonhoeffer right 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 because I, I'm thinking I, I know you I know your love for Bonhoeffer and it's partially being a Lutheran pastor but I mean I think even if you weren't Lutheran you love Bonhoeffer anyways because I know you um, you know it reminds me a lot of kind of what he did in the right. war too. I mean, minus the, the the plots against you know trying to kill Hitler, right? But like even you know the letters that he wrote from from jail and, and things like that. You know, both Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther King Jr. You know, writing these letters from prison and right. this this quiet kind of resistance. And, and I think one of the things I, I, that this this movie maybe became one of those uh, touch points that opened up for me the recognition how many important figures in. Uh, in the the Christian story over two thousand years, mm-hmm. were at their most effective and most faithful in those moments when yeah they were in a prison cell of one form or another yeah. and to tap into like oh that's Paul like half of the letters he writes he's like oh yeah and I'm in prison right now um, and that that's not something I mean, that that we have a, a, a way of reading that as oh it certainly wasn't shameful for him everybody realized that Rome was wicked no it was a pretty shameful thing to be in prison mm-hmm. and to be declared an enemy of the state and an enemy of the empire I can remember someone at, at uh, seminary. Uh, making the the case that when Paul did suffer martyrdom, it's most likely the charges would have been treason. And that, that mm-hmm. as far as the empire is concerned, the empire doesn't care what you worship. As long as you're willing to also step aside and let you know, Caesar run the day, you can worship however many other gods you want on yeah. the side. But that ultimately, the charges that stick for Paul and for others were that they were you know disturbers of the peace, they were, they were committing treason, and they were seditious by claiming mm-hmm. there was another king named Jesus. Um, that that's at the core of the of the Christian story is this way of whatever the empires are, and the letterheads mm-hmm. change, they come and go. It's it's Egypt, it's Babylon, it's Nazi Germany, whatever, uh, it's Jim Crow. Um, but that the faithful Christian witness has been to say no, and in those moments, um, the no isn't an angry, violent, we're going to punch you to make you be quiet, but we'll sing our different song. And, and mm-hmm. in singing that song, it's sort of this pointing toward uh, a different reality, a, a future hope, and the idea of longing for a homeland um, that that idea of being Christians as people who are exiles or living away from home or that we belong not to any one nation here on earth that our final allegiance goes to any one flag, but that we belong to this other homeland, that taps into so many places in the scriptures uh, to me as well. It's stories like uh, the scene in Casablanca or you know, reading about Bonhoeffer or Martin Luther King Jr., those who did resist and stand up in the face of evil, was it Bonhoeffer that said to do nothing in the face of evil is evil? Is that Bonhoeffer? It sure sounds uh, like a Bonhoeffery thing to say, whether he's yeah. the first one to say it or not. Um, but I think as a Christian in the 21st century America, there are certainly evil that happens in the world that I frequently am unsure of should I say something right, right, what right. should I say yeah, yeah. because it's often on those issues which I think are evil that there are other Christians who might be in my community might be sitting in my parish who 
support it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, that's always kind of this like delicate balance of how do I name this thing as sinful, as evil, without also losing my job, which feeds my children. <laughs> right, right. Mm -hmm. And also the possibility, it could, uh, could I be wrong about something? I mean, that, right, that, exactly. Yeah. It, so it's, it's one of those things that I so greatly admire, these people who were able to resist this evil and have it, like, like they had their path in yeah. front of them and they walked it. Yeah. Um, because oftentimes I feel like the path that's in front of me is less clear and mm -hmm. I really wish it was more clear. Yeah. One of the things I like about the, the more I've delved into to reading Bonhoeffer's own writings or, or to read uh, Dr. King and his letter from Birmingham jail is the recognition that even though 50 years later from Dr. King, we're like, oh, everybody knew him as a hero. No, he was hated by a large majority of the um, entire United States population at the time of his assassination. Mm. Um, and that the people he, that like King, in King's case, when he writes a letter from Birmingham jail, he's writing it to clergy who are accusing him of being too revolutionary. Um, mm. And he writes to moderate, largely Protestant clergy and saying, like, you're not being very helpful here and here's why. And, and, and him responding to them about why he's convinced that doing things like the boycotts or the sit-ins mm -hmm. or things are what he believes are necessary or the right steps. And it's never violent and it's never, uh, never motivated by hatred. I mean, uh, King's movement was always clear. This is never we're supposed to kill the people who we are opposed to, but the change we're, calling to, we're trying to bring is also to free them as well because they don't mm -hmm. get how they're participating in this uh, rotten system too. But to recognize that the choices they made, there was an awful lot of opposition around them as well. And they had to deal with both, could I be wrong, but also like, um, how, how, do I, how do I know that because there's other people who share my tradition, who claim, who name the name of Jesus and were convinced that segregation was great and Jim Crow was fine mm -hmm. and it was, mm -hmm. why are you stepping out of your place? That And Bonhoeffer too. There were other folks in the German church in the 30s and 40s who were like, well, we're no fan of Hitler's here, but we certainly don't want to say anything publicly, or we don't want to stick our necks mm -hmm. out, or, but he's the governing authority, he has the, and that, that I think is particularly troublesome for Lutherans who have this history of, because of a, a treatise of Luther's, of like, you have to obey the secular authorities, and when they're, when, when they're commanding you to do something, you have to do them because God, I mean, it, it's, it's a take on Romans 13, and that's a conversation mm -hmm. for another day, maybe, but that's been used so many times over our tradition's 500-year history to mean you may not like what the rulers do, but you have to support them because they are the rulers and they've come from God, rather than Bonhoeffer's realization that, like, there, there, there are times where you can't help but speak up and, and act. Mm -hmm. And I know for sure the line from, from Bonhoeffer is... Um, our, our job isn't just to help bandage the wounds of people who've been crushed under the wheel, but to drive a spoke through the wheel itself. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's the idea not just of how can we throw charity at the people who've been hurt by bad systems or wickedness or evil, but how do we change the systems themselves so more people don't get trampled on? Um, and I, Bonhoeffer really, really wrestled with how he would express that uh, resistance. I mean, from time to time, it was just the, the the stand he took preaching and speaking, which could get him in trouble. But eventually, it became yeah, participation in the conspiracy uh, to to kill Hitler, which also meant that from time to time he had to look and operate like he was supporting Hitler and the Reich mm -hmm. in order to maintain his cover. And that was a whole other dimension of the uh, how do you work for the side of what you're convinced is good, and also know that you have to pretend for a while to look like you're the bad guy. That that was a difficult part of his his story too. 
And all this reminds me of that classic loser line we mentioned in the last episode, but you're going to have to help me with the second half, Steve. Right. Sin boldly. But believe more boldly still, you two are a mighty sinner. <laughs> yeah, and, and that idea that, you know, sometimes it's better to do something right. than to not do something. Right. Even if doing something might end up being, you know, you realizing, oh, that was the wrong thing to do. Right. You know, sometimes we just need to speak up against the authorities and, you know, kind of let things fall where they yeah. where they may and hope that we were doing that at least with the right spirit even if it wasn't the right action right right and for me and i don't want this to make to make this a whole half hour about talking about Dietrich bonhoeffer un, without without advertising that's what it's gonna be but um one of the things that he wrestled i mean bonhoeffer's a pacifist he writes the he writes the book uh, cost of discipleship talking about mm-hmm. how like christians are not supposed to take up weapons against others and yet he is convinced that the only choice he has is to participate in a plot to kill hitler and he gets the he 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 sees like yeah this is a contradiction of my mm-hmm. of my faith and he's convinced that there's a pl- there are points at which there are no non-sinful options or where everything yeah. is in one way or another going to be mired by sin and he's more concerned because he's seen so much cowardice in other christians around him he's like we got we, there's no shortage of cowardice of people doing nothing so if that's going to save the day we got plenty of people doing that i'm willing to in a sense fall on the grenade and do this other thing that i'm convinced mm-hmm. is what will stop the world from the worst of what hitler is about um but it, i mean ba- back to the, the scene from casablanca from even though it takes in a takes place in a similar time period one of the things I like about it is that it's a moment of clarity, like you talked about, Sarah, the the the, the aching for clarity in our own lives. Of when do we speak up and when not, um, and how do we know? And like in that scene, if you're one of the people who's in Rick's cafe and you're just minding your own business, sitting at your own table, there's the the the, the option of just keeping quiet. I won't sing any song, and nobody'll know which allegiance I have, whether I'm pro Nazi or pro uh, free French or something like that. And there were people who could have taken that step, and yet. When you hear the songs of your homeland being played, you sort of can't help but join in and mm-hmm. sing. And um, to me, like because the, the the Bible ends in the Book of Revelation with a musical, with people breaking into song about how God makes His new creation, there's so much about that scene from Casablanca that, to me that feels like this is what the Book of Revelation was about when it was first written. It's under the nose of the empire and all of the official uh, imperial slogans and propaganda about how Rome will last forever. We'll sing a different song about our true homeland, about the new creation that we're called to be a part of, even if it's a homeland we're not living in right now. Um, and I, I think that that notion is one that's worth holding on to about Christians as exiles, as resident aliens, as a, a couple of authors put it uh, a, a few decades ago. There's a an early Christian writing that's been bouncing around in my head, too, um, alongside this scene. There's a second century letter that we only know as to Diogenetus. Uh, we don't even know who wrote it. Um, but the, the, the description of what Christians are like in that passage says, Christians live in every country of the world, but nowhere is exactly their home. So they can feel at home in, whatever, in the nation of their birth, but also anywhere else. And they never quite fit in. And they're known for being people who uh, share their bread uh, and who uh, bless their enemies and who uh, respond kindly when they're persecuted. Um, but they always remember that they are never quite at home anywhere else. Uh, and it's, it's that ultimate allegiance to that homeland that allows them both to live anywhere in the world, um, being scattered in the world, but also never quite to feel at home where they happen to be. And I, I think that scene from Casablanca sort of like gives a picture to me like that's what it would look like, that wherever mm-hmm. we are, we can sing the songs of that homeland that we belong to, even if it gets us into trouble with the empire of the day, be it Nazis or Rome or what have you. Um, and that gives us a sense of... of connection and of homeness wherever we are, but mm-hmm. also that we never quite are comfortable anywhere we live either. I'm thinking to kind of bring this into light into today's culture, 
on just 60, you know, almost 70 years later, I think of the Chinese Christians and, and, and the home church movement there. And, you know, their kind of resistance song would be singing hymns. Sure, sure. You know, in the midst of, you know, there was a church just in the news recently that was bombed right. by the government in China because it was a Christian church. And in that idea that, you know, while they're, China is their home, they they realize that their ultimate home, that's their physical home right here, mm-hmm. right now, but their ultimate home and their ultimate um, identity lies in heaven. And so I'm, even on Sunday morning, as we're singing hymns about heaven and, and about the new creation and things, that's almost kind of a resistance for us here in America against, you know, the the patriotism and the nationalism. Right. To, to me, I think an important reason about why, as of all the choice of ways to be church, why I'm someone who holds on to liturgy as a, as a structure of how we do mm-hmm. uh, worship life and why it's worth doing some songs and structures and words over and over and over again, week in and week out, um, isn't because it's magic or because God needs those words to be said, but it's like a reorienting week mm-hmm. after week of like, remember where home is, remember who we are and whose we are, because we're going to step out these doors into a world that is about to tell you, no, your allegiance should go to the empire, no, your allegiance mm-hmm. should be to your 401k, no, your allegiance should be to how much money you have or, you know, whatever, or Amazon or pick a corporation. Um, and that part of why we keep gathering is this way of saying, no, of all the other things I could do with my Sunday, I'm uh, going to be reoriented toward this this new creation and the, the the way of Jesus. And then that we're sort of reminded week in and week out about what what are the values, what's the way of life that that new creation looks like. So that whatever the other texts are that we're reading from or preaching from or whatever, there's this sort of core of like remember who and whose you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sometimes, uh, just at, a, at a, like a physiological level, like the things that we learn to sing become more deeply embedded. Like, you know, how many times I've been in the nursing home and you can not have a conversation with somebody, uh, but man, somebody starts singing Amazing Grace and that part of their brain, you know, mm-hmm. lights up and they can sing the songs, they sing the faith um, that is hardwired into them because they've learned it over those years. And in some sense, like, that's part of our... It doesn't look like resistance, maybe because um, there aren't Nazis around, or maybe it doesn't look like resistance mm-hmm. because nobody you know goes and takes up arms. But that a lot of Christian life, a lot of Christian worship, is meant to be resistance against the various sort of empires and 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 forces, and to use uh, the New Testament's language, principalities and powers uh, around us. Um, and it's, it's like in in the scene from the movie. It's not about now we go take up arms, we got to go get them. But like this is our resistance. We sing this different song, and as the world hears that. Uh, it's going to make them wonder. It's going to make them wonder about us and why would you dare sing this different song in a world that's, where the, the powers of the day seem mm-hmm. so strong, but also tell me about this Jesus who you follow. He's got to be pretty compelling if you're willing to sing his song right under the nose of all these other mm-hmm. powers. Um, so to me, this is also a, a, like about like how our public witness and what, what evangelism and what witness looks like, too. You know, for me, music is so powerful. And like you said, you, know, you can go into a nursing home, not have a conversation with somebody... But then somebody starts playing Amazing Grace and they, they, you know, and I've done some study with Alzheimer's patients and things. And that's one of the last things, if it ever leaves, is that music that was ingrained in them. And I'm wondering, um, especially for people like with Alzheimer's as they get older, if that's not a a built in resistance that God has placed (laughs) into us, the power of music Uh, and uh how it just stays with Mm us and can transport us to another time and place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, where things were good and, <laughs> and 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 just you know I don't know what the words I'm looking for I'm struggling with words but um, 
it almost seems to be an, a built-in resistance within us. And so for Casablanca to choose yeah, that, yeah, to show yeah. that resistance um, versus anything else that they could have done, but to choose music to show that. Right. And the, I guess the other thing I like about that moment in that, in the, it, not just that they sing, but like that while clearly in a sense it's directed at the Nazis, they, they don't all gang up on them and run and like sing in their faces like, you know, holding knives or, or with clenched fists. It's just like we're going to sing our own song and we're going to hold on to what we love mm-hmm. and, and not let your voice of hatred uh, overpower us. So like not to bring in a whole other piece of pop culture, but there is a line late in the, uh, eighth Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi, is my favorite line from that movie. Where late in the movie, uh, my favorite character from that movie, Rose Tico, says to another character, Finn, "That's how we're gonna win, not by uh, fighting what we hate, but by saving what we love." Mm-hmm. And that, uh, at least for that moment of the story, sometimes the the most powerful thing you can do against the the evil empire, even if it is the galactic evil empire, is we're gonna hold on to and protect the things that we love, and that becomes our way of resisting. Um, and I think that there's a lot about that in the Christian faith, where it's Jesus is the one who gets to do the dying and the saving and the mm-hmm. redeeming and defeating the powers of hell. And our part of that is we're singing that song. We hold on to what we love and whom we love and who loves us, rather than thinking our response is to answer evil with evil or hatred with hatred. So that's why I like that scene in that movie. <laughs> now I want to see the movie. <laughs> I got books and movies, <laughs> books to read, movies to see. Well, we hope you, that this has at least been thought-provoking and uh, that uh, maybe there are some avenues in pop culture you'll explore uh, or share your own places where pop culture has helped connect with your faith. But thanks for listening here today on Crazy Faith Talk. See you guys. Bye.